You're tuned in to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcast live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator, and he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for over 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, because More Living with Jim Brogan starts now. Welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI. February is Heart Health Month, and we every year in February we talk about heart health. Heart disease is a global issue, and it remains the leading cause of death for both men and women. Exercise is good for heart health. Nutrition is good for heart health. We have, though, seen young athletes have had cardiac events leading to a long recovery or even to to death. So what's going on in the world of cardiovascular disease? Are we seeing it affect young people more and more? How does COVID-19 fit into all this, both the disease itself and the vaccines? Our guest this morning is my good friend, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a cardiologist with University Cardiology. He's also a clinical assistant professor of cardiology at the University of Tennessee, and he often joins us this time of year to talk about heart health. Good morning, Jeff. Welcome to More Living. It's great to have you back with us. Good morning, Jim. It's good to be here and talk about heart health. Yes, sir. February's Heart Health Month. As I mentioned, heart disease is the number one cause of death nationwide. In Tennessee, almost one out of every four deaths is due to heart disease. Jeff, how would you define, what is the definition of heart disease? It's so interesting that you had asked me that, Jim, because I was thinking this morning about this. And I was thinking, of course, when we think about heart disease, the most common thing that we have come to mind is coronary artery disease and the the ultimate uh, manifestation of that is myocardial infarction or a heart attack. And much of what we talk about in heart disease has to do with addressing the risk factors that we are familiar with now, such as smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, sedentary activity, obesity, family history that contribute to coronary artery disease and heart attacks. But there are many other aspects of coronary artery disease. And since you and I started doing this years ago in February, the demographics have even changed somewhat as our population has aged. Um, we see much more rhythm disorders, the most common abnormality being um, atrial fibrillation. We see much more congestive heart failure than we used to see because the population is living longer. We've been able to protect them from their heart attacks and from their coronary artery disease in many instances. And then you brought up the aspect of younger people manifesting with heart disease. Um, So it's a broad category. Again, most of the time when people say heart disease, they think of coronary artery disease, but there are many other aspects to cardiovascular disease, and all of those, of course, are very important. 
There are more than 356,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests annually in the U.S. And, of course, that's one of the things, that, as you said, that we think about first. And nearly 90% of them, when they happen outside the office, are fatal. Jeff, what are some signs that something may be wrong with your heart? Are there anything, is there anything we may notice in advance of a cardiac event? Well, the aspect of sudden cardiac death is, um, I always say that when we ever are able to predict who is at higher risk for that, and there are research studies, very sophisticated research studies ongoing trying to look at this, um, then that that will be world change, life-changing, world-changing, not just cardiovascular disease-changing. Most common cause of sudden cardiac death is someone who has had a prior heart attack. Now, that can even be what we call a silent heart attack, meaning you might have had a heart attack with no or very little symptoms and don't even realize it. What happens is that the heart attack causes a scar to set up in the heart, and the scar causes spontaneously a derangement in the electrical pattern of the heart that can contribute to a fatal Arrhythmia. Now, there's two things, and I, I try to educate patients about this, and I'll take 20 seconds to explain. When we talk about sudden cardiac death, a lot of times patients will say, oh, yes, I got a really strong family history. Well, tell me about that. Oh, well, my father died of a massive heart attack. He did. So he had chest pain, and they brought him to the emergency room, and he was having a large heart attack. No, he got up from the dinner table and went to his chair and sat down and was gone. Usually that is not a, quote, massive heart attack, end quote. That is usually a fatal arrhythmia, uh, ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation that causes sudden cardiac death. And again, most of the time, not always, that is a result of an old scar that could have been related to a heart attack. Um, but that's not a quote-unquote massive heart attack like some people say. So this issue of sudden cardiac death is hard to predict. If you have risk factors for the other aspects of heart disease, of course you're at risk for that. That We have guidelines that if you are at really high risk for that, we place something called a defibrillator, uh, which is like a pacemaker, but it actually protects you from sudden cardiac death in certain patients. Um, but as far as being able to predict it in general, we still don't know how to do that. So, Jeff, as we age, we go in and we have, you know, we should be getting physicals every year. We should be getting regular blood work every year. How should we have our heart evaluated? How often should that be uh, And 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 as we age? First of all, I think you're right. I recommend that everyone have a primary care physician and uh, see their primary care provider annually. Um, blood work, such as basic blood sugars, cholesterol levels, your CBC and your kidney function evaluation with your electrolytes is, is a, a very good baseline. After that, we have different ways of uh, up, upgrading your risk, so to speak. In other words, if there's a strong family history or you're dealing with the risk factors that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, a lot of times there's reason for further evaluation. If you have any symptoms whatsoever, stress testing or echocardiogram is is a good thing. And then, again, as we age, um, we have more and more people coming in and saying, uh, my 
parents had heart disease or my brothers had a bypass or uh, my sister has some stents. And, and I look at them and I say, you just want to know if you have heart disease. And if they have no symptoms, first of all, we do look at the risk factors. And then there are other non-invasive things that we can do, such as a CAT scan that maybe will screen you for the presence of plaque. And, um, and a lot of times I will talk to patients about doing that if they're really trying to determine if they have underlying coronary artery disease. You mentioned when we talk, we're visiting with Dr. Jeff Johnson, cardiologist over at University Cardiology. This is Heart Health Month. And you mentioned, Jeff, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking, uh, certainly obesity can really be contributing factors. How much does genetics play a role in the risks of heart disease? You mentioned, you know, if you have a family history, how how prevalent is that? Yeah, interesting question in that uh, I also try to gently educate patients about that. I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but sometimes I'll say, well, now, do you have a family history of heart disease? And patients will say, oh, yes. And I said, well, tell me about that. My grandfather died of a heart attack. Uh, He was 93 years old and out in the barn and fell over with a heart attack. That doesn't count. In general, we say if you have a father, brother, grandfather, et cetera, who had a heart attack or a cardiac event before the age of roughly 45 or a female family member who had a cardiac event roughly before the age of 55, that is a family history of premature coronary artery disease that definitely increases your risk. And unfortunately, as you know, right now, we can't change our family histories. So I do try to clarify for people whether they truly do have a family history or not. And then the other thing that we look at is, uh, again, getting away from coronary artery disease, do you have a history of sudden cardiac death? Maybe maybe there's a history of what we call uh, uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, which can be a genetic thing where, again, you have a line of patients, father, grandfather, great-grandfather, who sat down in the chair, so to speak, and passed away suddenly, those things dramatically increase your risk. And then the third thing that I would bring up, just circling back to vascular disease, is there is more and more in the population an awareness of what we call familial or genetic, uh, either homozygous, meaning really severe, or heterozygous, meaning mild to moderately severe, hypercholesterolemia. If I have a patient who is not overweight, relatively young, and their total cholesterol is 350, and their LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, is 240, I will say, is there a family history? Yes, my mother had a heart attack and a bypass at the age of 37 or uh, something similar to that. So there's varying degrees of risk to answer your question, but a careful history done by your primary care provider or your cardiovascular provider can help tease that out a little bit. It's Heart Health Month, and when we come back, we'll have more with Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, cardiologist at University Cardiology. We're going to talk about lifestyle factors, also medicines. What can we be doing to reduce our risk? We'll also, a little bit later in the show, we'll get into the incidence of COVID-19 and how is this affecting the landscape of cardiovascular disease. So stay with us as you listen to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI.
Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm Jim Brogan. It is Heart Health Month. We're visiting with Dr. Jeffrey Johnson uh, from over at University Cardiology, longtime friend of mine and a longtime friend of the show, always very generous with his time. Uh, Jeff, let's talk about some of the risk factors. Let's talk about high cholesterol. What kinds of changes, how, how much can we reduce it naturally? Is there a point where that LDL number, you mentioned the bad cholesterol, gets high enough that probably going to take medication? Yes. Well, again, it's looking at the whole picture, but just talking about the cholesterol in and of itself, I believe that without um, one of the genetic high cholesterol disorders that I mentioned in the last segment, I think that a healthy lifestyle with a good diet, and people always ask, what's the best diet? I think if you read about the Mediterranean diet, that's in general what we recommend. Plenty of uh, fish and uh, lean chicken, limiting the red meats if possible, uh, fruits and vegetables, nuts, healthy nuts. Um, in, in general, that's the Mediterranean diet. I think that people can lower their LDL cholesterol, coupled with probably a little bit of weight loss, down to Less than 130, which is a current recommendation if you don't have known vascular disease, and potentially even down to 100. Um, And just just to give a very broad overview, if you have crossed over, as I like to say, and you've had a heart attack, you've had a bypass, you've had a stent, you've been told of significant blockage in your coronary arteries, we need the LDL cholesterol to go below 70 at least, and if you're very high risk, below 55 according to latest guidelines. And really, there's not a way to do that without uh, medicines. But again, with primary prevention, which is where you've never had a vascular event, maintaining a healthy weight, a regular exercise program, and a good diet, probably can help you get your LDL cholesterol definitely less than 130, trending down toward 100, and maybe even a little bit below that. Now, you mentioned uh, nutrition. You also there mentioned exercise. You know, I know you're a runner, Jeff, an avid runner. That isn't for everyone. You know, I'm a swimmer uh, is my preferred mode of exercise. What are some ways you encourage patients to get more exercise? I tell people to do what they're going to be able to stay with uh, without being discouraged uh, and, and, frankly, something that they enjoy. You know, I, I always admire your swimming and your ability to swim. You've done some uh, out-of-the-box type races and events, I know. But if I can swim. Uh, if you put me in a pool, I can swim across the pool long ways. But if you told me to try to do one of those prolonged things, I would get very frustrated. I'm not that good of a swimmer, and I just couldn't do it. And there's other people who don't want to run. I don't run fast, but it's a mental, emotional, spiritual time for me. And so as long as I can do my three to three and a half miles, five or six days a week, that's a a blessing for me. The most common thing that I tell people to do is to walk 
Um, ideally, I'll say get a dog if you don't have uh, a, a real good reason to walk right now. I can't tell you the number of patients who say, well, I've got this dog, and I walk him or her three times a day, and I say, that's fantastic. That is so good. We're aiming for 30 minutes of cumulative walking or exercise five to six days a week. The American Heart Association recommends 150 to 200 minutes of walking-type exercise per week. And if you do that in five or six days, um, it, it's 30 to 40 minutes per day. And, again, some people love to go to the gym. That's great. I say, tell me what you do at the gym. And a lot, a lot of patients like to talk about that. But I really think something that you can stick with, such as going out your door and walking your dog or uh, going to the mall early in the morning. There's still uh, many folks who do that and walking, something that you can do consistently. And then the last thing that I would add is that having an accountability partner frequently is very helpful. Like if you wake up one morning and you're not in the mood to go do your walk, but you're neighbor next door is counting on you being there or your best friend is counting on you being there, that'll also help increase your success in maintaining an exercise program. Yeah, you know, years ago, and I know you know this, but years ago when I was really unhealthy back about 15 years ago, uh, I had to have the accountability. And so I just had mm -hmm. to structure that in order to start to be successful with getting my life in order with exercise and nutrition, frankly. Now, you mentioned, Jeff, cumulative exercise. You've talked about that many times on this show, that it, it, it is effective. So, you know, parking a little bit further in the parking lot, walking up the steps, that stuff adds up, right? Are you a fan of of, you know, the smartwatches and tracking uh, your steps per day. Hey, get 10,000 steps a day. I would imagine you are a fan of that. Uh, I'm laughing a little bit because if you'll permit me, I'm going to share, this is a little off topic, but I'll say if I had three wishes given to me by the Magic Genie, I would, number one, end world number two, I would stop the war in Ukraine, and number three, I would ban Fitbits, Apple Watches, blood pressure machines. And I say that tongue-in-cheek when I'm talking to someone who is obsessed with that data from those devices. And to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a soapbox for me. I don't ever hear anybody come in and talk to me about their smartwatch says that they're getting in too many steps. They're worried that it's telling them they're having a, an arrhythmia or they're worried that their blood pressure is running too high, and because of that, they get anxious, the blood pressure is going higher. To answer your question, I think it's fantastic if people wear those devices and strive for 10,000 steps a day. That's just not what I hear most people talking about when they're talking about their watches, but maybe that's a different conversation. Yes, yeah, 10,000 steps a day is a great <laughs> target. Yeah, I've not gotten into that. Because, uh, of course, part of it, you know, I make sure to get, you know, get exercise and I have good weeks and I have bad weeks, but with the swimming and then working out with a trainer and all that. But, you know, I'm a big, uh, as, as I think you probably know, I love watches. I love mechanical and automatic watches. I love the, the science yes. behind them. It's just fascinating to me. And so I've never gotten into those, but boy, they're really just taking everything by storm. Uh, let's switch. Let's talk about medicine and drugs, Jeff. Um, you know, we know, as an example, diabetes and heart disease are closely linked. Um, there are new drugs on the market that are used for treating diabetes that are now also approved for weight loss. 
Are there cardiovascular dangers to using drugs to manage other conditions like obesity or diabetes? Um, I know many people have to have drugs to manage diabetes, but what about obesity? Yes, there are several drugs that are on the market now for the management of obesity, and um, the most common one would be the one that people have heard about, Ozempic. Uh, I see plenty of patients that are on that. And frankly, we don't have outcomes data. When we say that in medicine, we're saying um, we may be able to prove that it can cause you to lose 5, 10, 20, 30 pounds, but there's not enough data yet to show that if you take this drug and lose the weight that way, you also live longer. That doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. We know that obesity contributes to long-term cardiovascular risk and death. And so uh, by inference, you can say that if it helps you lose the amount of weight uh, that I've talked about, five pounds to 20, 30 pounds, uh, or even more in some instances, that there is definite cardiovascular benefit from the weight loss whether the drug itself actually contributes to those outcomes, we don't know that. But again, in general, we don't feel that that's a bad thing. I mean, even aside from drugs, and I know you didn't ask about this, but the data about uh, the surgical approaches to obesity are very good in that we believe that we do reduce long-term morbidity and mortality with surgical weight loss. Um, um, so, so you mean I'm things like you mean things like you mean things like lap band surgery, bypass surgery, you know, bypass surgery, yes. those kind of things. Yes, yes. There was a paper that came out in one of our cardiovascular journals just in the last week that showed that those options for weight loss in our ever increasingly obese society are being underutilized um, by doctors today. So. Um, I think, I think that they, it has its place. But back to your original question, the medicines that we use, uh, and again, Ozempic is the most popular one, but there are others out there. We don't have outcomes data directly for the medicine, but we know that with sustained weight loss that you improve your long-term prognosis, which is a good thing. Yeah, you know, when I, uh, you know, the last three years with the onset of COVID-19, uh, you know, I know I've put on some weight and I'm trying to get some of that off. And, I've, you know, I'm 53 now, Jeff, and I kind of feel like obesity may be one of the, you know, maybe my biggest risk factor for future uh, big health problems. So, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm determined that, you know, I've got to get that under control. Putting on 30 pounds over, since COVID is not a good thing. Um, and, you know, I was probably 10 pounds overweight before COVID which is not obese, but then, you know, I put on a good bit of weight. So, you know, I think managing obesity as we age, there's just, as you say, there's just so many other risk factors that, that shoot offshoot, that are offshoots from that. We're visiting this morning with Jeff Johnson. He's a cardiologist at University Cardiology. This is Heart Health Month. And later in the show, we're going to get into COVID-19 and the, the increasing incidence we're seeing of heart events in young uh, people, especially young athletes, but really young people in general, and what are the long-term implications of both COVID-19, you know, and the vaccine, but then how much have lifestyle factors played into that, because since COVID, a lot of people have put on more weight, people drink more alcohol, 
we're going to discuss all of that. Now, before, however, in the next segment, we're going to cover our dollars and cents segment. And with the Super Bowl this weekend, it reminds me that we, many of us have our favorite sports teams and many of us have season tickets to those favorite sports teams, whether it's the Tennessee Titans or, of course, here in Knoxville, our hometown Tennessee Vols. How can you leave your tickets to your heirs without getting sacked? So we'll have that when we come back. Stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Welcome back to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. This is News Talk 98.7 WOKI as we talk about Heart Health Month with cardiologist Jeff Jeffrey Johnson from over at University Cardiology, longtime friend of the show. Uh, before we get back to heart health, however, it is time for dollars and cents. Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. It's Super Bowl weekend, and many of us loyally follow our favorite teams, whether it's pro sports or certainly in East Tennessee, college sports with the University of Tennessee. We got the Titans in Nashville. Many in this area are diehard Atlanta Falcons fans. Uh, And when we have season tickets, you might have seat licenses or you might have season tickets with the University of Tennessee. You know, there's nothing more more heartwarming than, than a parent passing down their football affiliation to their kids. You know, a mutual fund for your favorite team can really be a glue that helps hold the family together. But passing down season tickets and seat licenses from generation to generation can get hairy at times. So much so that you probably need to be talking to your estate planner or your financial planner or attorney. You know, there's many times a lot of strings attached. There was actually one famous tale where um, a a lady had, that was a diehard Washington, and at the time the Washington Redskins, now they're the commanders, uh, she had season tickets and she wanted her son to get her season tickets, so she put her son's name on those season tickets. And one year, she couldn't get to the ticket office to pick them up, so she had him pick them up. And then he kept the tickets, and they were in his name. And so she had to sue him over those tickets. Uh, There have often been issues where uh, parents will name their two kids, for example, as inheriting their season tickets or their seat licenses. Many of those seat license contracts require that the seat license can only go to one person. And in many instances, people who have inherited those seat licenses have had to hire attorneys to sort all that out because the tickets were left to two people. 
then it can also create family arguments and strife. And that's the last thing you want to have happen. I think the biggest thing is if you have built up equity, is what I'll call it, with your either seat license or season tickets for your favorite sports team, it's important, number one, be sure you're, you're in contact with that institution, whether it's the University of Tennessee or the Tennessee Titans, to know exactly what the contracts and the fine print say. What are the options? How do you best leave those? Can you even leave those? What are the spousal rights? You know, sometimes the spouse, you, you can leave those to a spouse, but not to the children, oftentimes with something like the University of Tennessee, for example. So be in communication. Bring that to your financial planner or estate planner's attention. Make sure to include it in the estate planning because there could be some equity value there that would be part of your estate uh, that would be considered for taxation purposes. But, you know, as I said, sports in many cases, is a glue. I know for my family, we just love our season tickets for sporting events, especially Tennessee football and Tennessee basketball. And it's something that even my 22-year-old oldest daughter comes home to. She loves to come home uh, on the weekend in the fall and go to games with us. And my 17-year-old, when she goes to college, I know she's going to be the same way. So have these conversations with your family. Have the conversation with the institution that you have your seat license or season tickets. And make sure you understand the rules and the fine print and how to properly pass on those items. That's our Dollars and Cents segment for this week. You can find this week's Dollars and Cents segment and others by visiting BroganFinancial.com. Please do check us out online at BroganFinancial.com. Uh, you can click radio and hear all of our podcasts from my shows, from the Dollars and Cents segments, and the retirement minutes we run every week on this station. Uh, we also have uh, my next college class for adult education is through Pellissippi State Community College, and it is Thrive Financially in Retirement. It's on March the 2nd and March the 9th, two two-hour sessions. You can go to PellissippiRetirementPlanning.com to get a syllabus for more information uh, and, down, and re also click a, a link to register. Uh, for our entire spring schedule, I've got a one-night class on income planning in retirement. I've also got a one-night class on tax planning, specifically in retirement and prior to retirement. So for more information, you can go to BroganFinancial.com and click on Classes. This morning, we're visiting with Dr. Jeff Johnson as it is Heart Health Month, and he's a cardiologist at the University of Tennessee, longtime friend of the show, um, Jeff, I was talking there uh, previous to the break about COVID-19, and before we get too into COVID-19, I do want to say, in, in terms of cardiac arrest and, and sudden cardiac ish, incidences with young people, you know, according to the CDC, uh, about 2,000 young, seemingly healthy people under age 25 in the United States die each year of sudden cardiac arrest. So it seems like we're hearing more about cardiac arrest in young people. Are we actually seeing increased incidences, or is it simply being publicized more because of what we've been through with COVID? 
I think that in general it's being publicized more. I think that COVID has heightened our awareness of most everything. Um, without getting too controversial, we do know that uh, while the vaccination protecting us from COVID is uh, inherently safe, there is a very slight risk in younger people of cardiac inflammation. There have been some publicized accounts of that. Um, again, that is a slight risk, but um, again, especially when it's younger people involved, um, there can be a, an, an increased awareness and public publicity surrounding something such as that. But I think that if you look at the three, two or three main causes of sudden cardiac death in younger people, we've already talked about one, dilated cardiomyopathy where the heart becomes severely weak and it's a genetic abnormality. There are many other reasons people can have weakened hearts, but a genetic weakness of your heart that develops spontaneously. And then the other would be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is uh, an abnormal thickening of the heart muscle that makes especially young patients prone to arrhythmias. Some of the popular uh, sad stories Jim, you and I, being sports people, we remember Reggie Miller with the Boston Celtics years ago, uh, dying, collapsing of sudden cardiac death. Um, that is just one example of someone having hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and sudden cardiac death in a young, otherwise healthy person. So I would say hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is a genetic disorder, are always going to be there, unfortunately, and we probably hear more about them uh, just because of this awareness. As far as other things such as COVID-related cardiomyopathy, we really have not seen that anywhere near as much as what we thought we would. And does the vaccine increase your risk of that, especially in young people? Um, the, the, the clinical answer to that is slight, slight, slight increased risk. So, um, yeah, that may be more or less than what you were asking. Well, so it's interesting. I'm reading uh, a, an article from the journal Circulation. Now, this is from 2021 about heart disease and stroke statistics. So maybe maybe we have more data now, but I do want to ask you about this. A professor from Baylor College, or excuse me, a professor in cardiology and cardiovascular research, said that it's it, he believes COVID-19's influence will directly and indirectly impact rates of cardiovascular disease prevalence and deaths for years to come uh, because of potential damage to the heart. Do we know more now? I think kind of what I'm hearing is over the last couple of years as more data has come out, you're, uh, what I heard you say is you're not seeing as much impact on cardiovascular issues as maybe the medical community thought it would. When COVID came out, uh, we were prepared from the literature, the cardiovascular literature and circulation as one of the, if not the top journal in cardiology. We were told to be on the lookout for these cardiomyopathies. Again, that's a weakness of the heart muscle. We have not seen anywhere near as much of that as what we anticipated. However, there are other things that we have seen and do see related to COVID, and these can either directly or indirectly affect your cardiovascular health. One of the things that we did not anticipate at all that we have seen so much of is 
um, what we call autonomic dysfunction without getting too far into the weeds. That's just your autonomic nervous system is what regulates your heart rate and your blood pressure based on your situation that you are presently living in. And COVID-19 infection seems in some patients to affect your autonomic blood pressure and heart rate response. For example, I have seen young people who have recovered from COVID but are dealing with markedly low blood pressures and fast heart rates. It's like they're dehydrated and they're exercising when they're sitting there in your examination room still. Uh, this, is, this is an effect of COVID that we have seen related to the cardiovascular system. And then the other thing is this long-term, very unfortunate, what we call long COVID or chronic fatigue, chronic shortness of breath, chronic weakness related to that. And again, yes, COVID did do to many of us, which you were talking about earlier, it made us stay in, made us not go to the gym, made us not exercise much, we gained weight. But a lot of these patients uh, beyond that, uh, they didn't get over COVID completely in seven to 10 days like a lot of people do. They are continuing to deal with it, which has uh, reduced dramatically their ability to exercise. They've gained weight. All of that contributes to obesity and other risk factors like we were talking about earlier. So we see those two things, the autonomic dysfunction and then the long COVID fatigue uh, inability to exercise, inability to be active, we see that much more than the cardiomyopathy that we were originally prepared for. Well, interestingly enough, uh, as we've talked about lifestyle, this same doctor, his name's Salim Varani, he actually said in this same research article, an even more critical issue will be the cardiovascular health risks that are exacerbated by the poor lifestyle behaviors that have been prevalent coming through the pandemic and he mentions the unhealthy behaviors that are known to increase the risk of heart disease and stroke unhealthy eating habits increased consumption of alcohol lack of physical activity and the mental toll of quarantine isolation or even fear of contracting the virus all can adversely impact a person's risk for cardiovascular health that is correct we have seen that and it's unfortunate have you seen in your patients over these last three years since COVID, have you seen an, uh, an increased adoption of some of these unhealthy behaviors? I mean, I know I've done it. What have you seen with your patients? Oh, sure. Um, uh, we call it the, the COVID diet or the COVID lack of a diet. Um, so many people, <laughs> uh, they, they come in and they, uh, they they are they're almost prepared with their explanation, and I say, listen, I totally understand. I get it. I've dealt with it myself. Uh, I've seen many other patients. Don't feel bad. Let's let's talk about some ways to gently start to reverse the trend. But yes, um, even today, there are still people, um, understandably, who are socially um, cautious, and so they're not going to the gym. I can't tell you the number of people who have told me. I used to go to the gym, but since COVID, I do not go to the gym anymore. And they've not replaced that exercise routine with something else, such as walking. Maybe they don't live in a good neighborhood for walking, or maybe the weather really affects them. And so they've not found a substitute. Yes, countless number of people that have been affected by COVID uh, in, in that way that you were talking about earlier. 
when we come back with Dr. Jeff Johnson, it's, it's Heart Health Month. I'm going to talk about, with the Super Bowl coming up tomorrow, let's talk about how fandom can increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. A very interesting study from Bayer, uh, that the makers of uh, aspirin, Bayer Aspirin. As we visit with Dr. Jeff Johnson, this is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. February is Heart Health Month, and we're visiting with Dr. Jeffrey Johnson from University Cardiology as you listen to more living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Uh, Jeff, as we headed into Heart Health Month in February, Bayer, the maker of Bayer Aspirin, uh, they uh, embrace their new role as official sponsor of fans' hearts. And interestingly, heart attack risk can more than double when your home team plays. Our fandom could be dangerous. And I think it's not just when we cheer for our for our teams. Many people may be saying, well, I'm not, a hu- I'm not that big of a fan of whatever team, but you know our kids in, participate in sports, our grandkids participate in sports. Talk about the danger of fandom to cardiovascular disease. Jim, it's actually a real thing, and uh, sadly, I have seen through the years um, not many, but a few events where the sudden stress, whether it be um, passionate excitement or rage and anger has contributed to uh, a an acute cardiac event. Um, I can think of three instances that I've seen in 20-plus years of practice where this has occurred, um, and you can understand that. I mean, you're immediately out of your seat or you're immediately jumping up at the television at home and unbelievably excited. And, um, yes, it is a real thing. Well, I can tell you this as I've aged. I mean, you know I'm a diehard fan. I know you're a big fan as well of, of our Tennessee sports. And I have really, in the last five years, made myself – as much as I could, or as much as I can, calm down during these sporting events, especially when I'm there. Um, you know, a lot of times when I shout, I'm really doing it out of humor now, not stress, especially when I'm yelling at the refs. But sometimes I do still get angry at the refs. Yeah. So I think we need to keep that under control. Oh, goodness. We do. And I think, you know, again, um, kind of referring to what we were talking about earlier, the dramatic events, unfortunately, remember – I mean, I've seen thousands of patients in 20-something years. And like I said, I can think of three events that were directly related to fandom. So that's very rare out of thousands of events, but it is a real thing. I think that what you just said is the answer. I, I, also, <laughs> I also work towards being more calm. I'm not sure that during the Alabama game, 
Tennessee-Alabama game this year, many people were very calm. But no. all that being said, I try to be more calm, too. Jeff, we've just got about 20 or 30 seconds. What is the most important thing you want people to know about heart health? Try to be moderate with your diet and try to walk five days a week if you can. That's a That's great word, nutrition, nutrition and, uh, and fitness. Dr. Jeff Johnson, you're always so uh, so generous with your time every year. And, we, of course, we had you on a few weeks ago talking about the Buffalo Bills player that had the cardiac arrest. But thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. It's always great to visit with you. I love being here, Jim. You do a great job, as always. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Jeffrey Johnson of University Cardiology. We've talked about Heart Health Month because greater health provides for more living so you can live the best years of your life your way. Just be careful when we watch the Super Bowl this weekend and don't let your fandom uh, cause you to uh, get a little bit too excitable as we talked about with uh, cardiac stress during our sporting events. Thank you for tuning in. This is More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.